In our culture, we learn through stories. But what if the stories we hear don't match the reality of life? What if the stories we hear every day that tell us how to write the narrative of our lives actually lead us to a false narrative? My name is Tim Kroll, and on this podcast, you will hear real stories. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Real people sharing the hard times, the bends in the roads along life's journey. If you're ready to join a community of other real people who are writing the narrative of their lives, then go to narrative.live and join the community. Now let's dive into today's show. All right, welcome back again, folks. We have, and I say this every time, but I love it. We have another awesome story because, <laughs> I mean, truly, this is how we learn to get to know each other. This is how we are able to connect with each other, build relationships. And so I love being able to share these stories. Lynn, you and I, we connected, I think, over a year ago, and we talked a lot about your story. And that's why I'm really excited to get it recorded. But before we jump into some of the history and the way that we do that and do all of those things, uh, give me the 30 second, who's Lynn? That way our audience can actually hear a little bit about this. Who's Lynn? Wow. Lynn is an only child. Lynn is the mother of two very strong young women and the wife of a a wonderful husband. And I love to travel and I have, I love to rescue animals. So we have three dogs, two cats and a soon to be 18 year old turtle. Wow. <laughs> I love that turtle idea. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's all. You're just going to have to start a farm and then just keep getting the goats and the so. pigs and the horses and the cows and donkeys. And we can just keep going, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think I would be down with that, which is very, very odd, very uh, green acres of me. But yes. <laughs> oh, it's okay. It's okay. All right. So let's jump into uh, the the building or the making. What were the beliefs that really created your narrative before you entered into adulthood, the things that you thought you were going to establish your life on. Let's jump into the growing up timeframes, the development timeframes before you actually entered into adult life. So that's such an interesting question for me, because, you know, I grew up thinking that I had Word and June Cleaver as my parents. Mm. Like I thought that Everything was easy and normal, and I did not see who my father truly was until I was an adult. And I know we're going to get into that in the next question. So I, I want to just look back. I know that I, I had friends whose parents were divorced, and I thought, oh, no, not me. I live in this very normal house. And You know, I I grew up with two parents. In the meantime, now that I know what I know, I look back at my life very differently and I see things through a different filter. I see the things that were not normal. Hmm. I see the things that made me believe that this was how relationships were formed and they were really incorrect. So let's kind of dive into that. And I I think this is true with all of us. We grow up in our households and thinking that we have a normal life, regardless of our situations, regardless of everything that's going on. We grow up thinking everybody goes through that. And then looking back, like you just said, I think that's so key is so often we can now see what was not normal because we've now experienced a lot more. But in that time, when you thought it was normal, what were the beliefs that you established? Like, this is how you build a relationship. This is how you do life. What were some of those things that were going on in your brain to say, this is what we do? Well, not only that, I think also, this is how we behave when things go wrong. Oh, yeah. 
right? Like this is a normal response to a crisis. And whether that was giving someone the silent treatment and burning the bridge, or it was being catatonic and not present at all. Mm. Like those were, those were the, the solutions that I witnessed. And I, 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 at the time, because we're so conditioned to normalize those behaviors as a child, right, you know, right, right. We, why would I question that? So yeah, the burning bridges with people when, when things didn't go your way, when someone said something that you took offense to and you cut them off, stopping speaking to family members, disturbing family gatherings and occasions, you know, holidays, making uh, a scene. I mean, these were like, okay, okay, we, we've got to go now. You know, this is how it, this is how it is. This is okay. Dad's upset. We need to leave. And, you know, it's confusing. It's, it's really confusing. And so for me, I sought solace in my friends' homes and they were less economically privileged and they were more parentally privileged. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> that is, that's deep, actually. It's really deep. Yeah. So I know we all go through these things where we have to heal from them, but if it's okay, I'll ask just a little bit deeper. Can you be specific on how you believed that you had to act when you were a child? Can you be, because you talked about, you know, there's an upset, so we had to leave the family. So what did that look like? How did that materialize? Well, so there was like a supreme level of loyalty to my father so that no matter how he behaved or what he said or what emotional grenade he threw at someone else, that I was still team dad, you know? And so I had to be unified in that no matter. So when you're like eight years old, you don't know whether to say, you know, this, this is weird. Right. But then when I was like 12, I said, why are you doing this? And I asked him. Yeah. And like, why question? (laughs) Like, why are you doing this? You don't behave this way at your family's house. We were at my mother's family and it wasn't ever a question of if he was going to have a narcissistic rage storm, if he was going to have a nuclear meltdown, it was when. And when it happened, it upset everyone, right? My mother was crying and my grandmother was upset. And and then he would leave because that's what they do, right? They drop, they throw the grenade and then they leave. And he would go upstairs and pout. It wasn't like he would really leave, like he got in his car and drove back to home. No. He, he just wanted to make everyone around him completely uncomfortable. Hmm. And so I would ask that question, why are you doing this? And he would pretend I wasn't there, hmm. he would not respond. He would not acknowledge me, nothing. And so that was kind of, I think that was the point at which I started realizing this isn't normal. Yeah. So at eight, you felt that you had to be team dad. Why did you feel like you had to be team dad at eight? And then 12, you started asking why. But yeah. at eight, it was just more of an acceptance. Was there a modeling? Was Why did you feel like you were so... Because here, here's the reason why I'm asking this too, because I've actually seen this in other people's lives, is sometimes they don't start asking a question at 12. Sometimes they don't ask the question until they're 25 or 30 or 40. They don't ask that question why. You came to a maturity there very quickly at, at 12. So what was your mindset like? Why did you feel like you had to accept it? 
Well, so at eight, I think it was like the company line. Like that was what my mother projected. Like mm. my mother would say, oh, dad's upset. We're leaving, you know. And then we the car ride home was very much my mother enabling him. So it would go something like, that person doesn't deserve you. That person doesn't know everything that you've done or that organization, or they should be so grateful for you. You know, you're this incredible person. So she was very much enabling that behavior to continue. And so there wasn't really another choice as an eight-year-old. Mm. That was it. Yeah, I can totally see that. And that was the example that you were following is just saying, that's what you looked at, you know, and then the asking the question, why you said he just ignored the question, why? So what was going on in your brain? Was that when you started to, to find solace in your friend's home around the 12 age? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Going into teenagers. Absolutely. In fact, I had one really incredible friend. By the time I was 14, I was going on family vacations with her family. Mm which was very telling. There was none of that drama. Wow. However, I think at 12, I felt like, why isn't anyone asking him this question? Why is everyone tolerating this terrible behavior? Why is my mother crying? Like my defense came out in defense of my mother. Why Mm. is my mother crying? Why is my grandmother upset? Why doesn't anyone call him out and say, quit it? Yeah. He's a bully and nobody says a word. Yeah. Wow. My mother normalized his behavior like, oh, that's just dad. You know, he had a rough upbringing. He had like she would throw in all kinds of defenses Mm. unnecessarily. So, you know. Yeah. So the wake up kind of started around 12. When was the mindset shift for you? When you're like, hey, this is not normal and this is not how we're going to live our life. And it sounded like you very quickly learned some of those traits that you felt, you know, the emotional bombs and the grenades being thrown and the team dad, you had to make that transition very quickly. So what? when was that mind shift? What, what did that look like? So, you know, it's interesting because I think that certainly there's a period of time in your life where you're you're in self-discovery and you're educating yourself. And so I feel like while my eyes were opened at 12, I didn't have a mind shift set until I was 39. Wow. Because that's when my mother suddenly died. Oh. And it was as if with her, and it was a very sudden passing. She wasn't ill. There wasn't an accident. And she went into the emergency room on a Monday. And by Tuesday night, she had a massive stroke across both Mm. hemispheres, completely non-responsive. So we had no time to prepare for this. And what I realized very quickly was who she left me with. So don't forget in the beginning, I said to you, Lynn is an only child, right? I was just, uh, I was thinking that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so at 39, I was lost and confused because I had lost my mother and I had no idea what grief looked like. So I didn't know if what was happening with my father was grief or it was something else. And then it's like, you're almost in this place where you start to remember all those things from when you were 12 Mm. and you you're putting together clues to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And the things that he didn't said were so off. 
and they were so cruel and cutting, and he had no desire to have a relationship with me or with my children, his only grandchildren. And it was mind boggling. It sounds like there's so much to learn both between 12 and 39. Yeah. As well as there's a lot of lessons here. And I want to give you that honor that where would you like to go? Would you like to talk about the time frame between the 12 and the 39? Or do you want to talk about the transition and the coming to a realization that your dad didn't want to be a part of your life? Yeah, I think it's more, I think that I, I learned more at 39 because mm-hmm. between 12 and 39, that was about high school, college, mm-hmm. law school for me, getting married, having kids, very normal life happenings. And I think that there were things that I noticed along the way that were different about my father, but my mother was like correcting. Like the insulator. Yes. Yeah, she was. She was the translator, the mediator. She connected us. And then without her, I had no idea how to communicate with him. Mm. And so like at at 39, like I'm looking at him, he's looking at me and and I'm like, well, I want to try and continue what we had when my mother was alive, which was, you know, looking back, it was really attempting to be very normal as far as like family dinners and like they were there for milestones with my kids. But as soon as she was gone, like everything went haywire. Hmm. And I'm talking about like from the days after she was gone, like my, fast. I'm going to tell you a story that I've never shared with, with any podcaster before. So this is, this is really exclusive. Okay. (laughs) I told you she went into the hospital on Monday by Tuesday night, she was gone. She was on a ventilator. We had to make a very difficult decision about Mm. keeping her on the ventilator. There was zero brain activity. Uh, We took her off the ventilator on Wednesday. She did not pass away until Thursday. Okay. That's how your body works. So Tuesday, my best friend from college came in. She's so much more than my best friend. Um, she's my person, if you will. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, she came in to sit in the hospital with me and to help with anything with the kids. With She was incredible. So Thursday night, my mother's gone. People had sent over food as they do when, when a loved one passes away. And it was all at my house. And so we had dinner at my house and it was, you know, my two small daughters, my husband, myself, my father, and my best friend. We were sitting at the table and my father says, my best friend's name is Julie. Hey, Julie, I think we should go to the casino tonight. I have tickets for a concert. And now the three of us adults, right? My husband, myself, and my best friend are visibly uncomfortable. And my, my Julie says, ha ha, yeah, come on, that's not right. And he goes, well, I got the tickets. We have nothing else to do. We should just go. I have the tickets to the concert. We should go to the concert. And she goes, that is not appropriate. Like, what's going on? And in my mind, I was like, is this grief? What's happening here? Like, I just lost my mother. This is like catastrophic. The funeral is going to be on Sunday. I have my mother's family's coming in Friday night, Saturday morning, whatever. This is Thursday night. He wants to go to a concert. This is very, very typical 
of someone suffering from narcissistic personality disorder, but I didn't have a clue. Mm. I didn't know what was wrong. Think about this. Your mother dies. Your parents have been married for almost 50 years. What? What's going on? Like bizarro world. Just bizarre. Well, how did you respond? Because obviously you said you're very awkward. What happened in your brain? Was that the time of a wake up kind of a like there's what happened there? That was me trying to compartmentalize. Okay. I didn't say a word. She shut him down. Okay. My husband and I kind of had a discussion later on that night where we're like, what was that? I don't yeah. know. I don't know what grief looks like. Maybe that's grief. I, like, what? Right, because you're dealing with all of those emotions as well. Yeah. And so you're trying to trying to just interpret that in your own internal and then to add that on top of it. Wow. I mean, then we get to the day of the funeral. I didn't learn this until much later on, by the way, because once I started a different trajectory, people came forward and told me things. All right. So the day of her funeral comes and my mother was really beloved. My father believed he was beloved. He was wrong. My mother was very involved. She was a good friend. She was a good listener. So a lot of people came out for her funeral. Plus, you know, 66 years old, it was shocking that she was gone. So we have her funeral. I, I gave the eulogy. My eldest daughter spoke, who's nine at the time. It was emotional. My uncle, my mother's brother spoke. It was really an emotional day. My father was mostly catatonic. But again, maybe that's grief. Like, I don't question that at all. But there was a time where he wasn't sitting next to me, and I didn't know what went on. Turns out there was a reporter there, and he was more concerned with how the press coverage would be, how he would be reflected in the newspaper than with the actual funeral. So he was walking around this reporter and better be on the front page kind of stuff. Like, my mind was right there. My mind was, was, I was rooted in the grief. So to learn that he was not, this is what propels me forward. Yeah. Was that the experience that really shifted the way that you look at yourself, the way that you look at the world? Was that the, the time? And, you know, especially as you move forward, how do you act now? What are the beliefs that you have about yourself and the value, the self-worth? Because it sounds like there's a lot of stuff tied in there. Yeah, for sure. So was that the moment? I would say that plus five years, because at five years, there were like little things happening. Like I'm, I'm telling you a few examples. And then in 2015, five years after she died, he did something that probably broke us permanently. He went against me publicly and I was like shocked, like he was Mm. competing with me and it was eye-opening. That was the shift right there. It's funny. I know we're not going to talk about my book here and we'll talk about that. We can talk about that. That's no problem because that's that's good. That's good. (laughs) But I wrote about it and I called it shock and awe because Mm. it was like, I just didn't even know what to, I couldn't even process it. Like it was unbelievable. So I think that's when it shifted. And so what are the beliefs that I now have? I'm going to tell you that it took me until probably a couple of years ago when it finally hit me that I am worthy. And I realized at that point that my self-worth was all tied up in the conditional love and the transactional love that had been given to me by my father. 
And that was eye-opening. What I've also learned is that high emotional intelligence is the antidote to this type of behavior. You know, being self-aware, understanding that you are not the only person on the planet. I mean, I have every opposite emotion and behavior. I think that uh, someone suffering from narcissistic personality disorder has because of that. That's how that was how I compensate. So let's let's dive into that. How did you break that tying yourself worth to conditional love? Because that sometimes is where people are at. They don't know how to break that I am value because of a conditional love. How did you do that? Well, you know, it wasn't really a choice for me because what would happen is he would become angry, upset, offended at something that had occurred and he would start giving me the silent treatment. So he would walk out of my life. In the beginning, it was just for a couple days. By the end, it was for multiple years. And when he did that for the very first time, I was lost. Like I was just lost because I didn't understand how he wouldn't sit down and talk to me. You just refuse. Like, you know, they there is no conflict resolution. There is no conversation, no accepting possibility, but you don't exist. I'm not interested. And then what would happen is he'd come back and he'd say, Okay, I'm ready to be a family again. And I want you to know I have a lot of regrets, but regrets are not productive. So I try very hard not to dwell on them. But I would accept him. I would say, okay, he's ready to be a family again. I don't want to lose my only living parent. I don't want to be the one who walks out on this relationship. So I would accept him where he was because he wasn't willing to discuss what had happened. He wasn't willing to accept any responsibility for it. And then we'd we'd go forward. And then the times that were good, which were not really good, became less and less. And the stretches of the silent treatment became longer until I recognized the toll it was taking on me, mentally, emotionally, physically. I wasn't sleeping, gastro, into, in, you know, problems, skin issues. I mean, I was a mess. Mm. Lashing out at the people closest to me. It bleeds into every aspect of your life. And so, that's when I realized I needed to say enough. And I think that point is different for everyone. You know, when you absolutely come, right, when you come to that place where you say, this is it, this is where I draw the line. I can't do it anymore. And so that was it for me. And I'd love to tell you that's where the story ended, but I went back again. <laughs> Three years later, I went back again. And he said to me, I don't want to rehash the who said what. I didn't say anything. I don't know what you mean. (laughs) What do you mean you don't want to rehash it, right? I didn't say a word. And he said, "Um, I just want to go forward. And I said, well, how do I know that you won't do the exact same thing again? You know? And he said, oh, because I don't want to lose my only daughter. And it was everything I wanted to hear. And so I said, okay, okay. And then a year and a half later, he walked out again. Only I hadn't even done anything. I didn't say a word. I didn't offend him. But I was in the spotlight. It was a really small spotlight. It was a really tiny, local, teeny, tiny spotlight. But it was enough to trigger him. Mm. 
And so he walked out of my life. And that's when I realized nothing is ever going to change. Mm. Yeah. I, so how, how did you heal, though? How did you find that value? Where, does, where did that healing come from? Because that is the critical part of this story. Yeah, you bet. And it's a lot of work. And mm. you have to do the work. And so for me, I turned it into, and maybe this is my legal education, I turned it into a huge amount of research, right? <laughs> I started doing all this research about narcissistic personality disorder. I started interviewing people that had suffered narcissistic abuse in many different ways than I had. So I interviewed some people who had parents but maybe they had mothers instead of fathers. And then I interviewed people who were in romantic relationships or who had toxic bosses mm. who are narcissists in the workplace and siblings and friends. And so it was really fascinating. So the things that the, the one major takeaway is that the gift that people who suffer from narcissistic personality disorder give us, the victims, is that they are completely consistent. Mm -hmm. They're very easy to recognize. And so that makes it easy for us to avoid them going forward. That helped me immensely. So I wrote the book. I talked to a lot of people. I went through therapy. And I did a lot of my own self-work, right? So I realized that I am worthy I did a lot of self-care, which I highly, highly recommend. And, you know, I really thought that self-care was like Bath and Body Works when I started this whole adventure, and it's not. Self-care is having a cup of coffee with a friend. Self-care is taking a walk and getting a good night's sleep and eating healthy and taking a shower and putting on clean clothes and like those, that's self-care. Yeah. So, I think that, you know, it's a journey. You, you didn't get here overnight. It does take a while. I feel like I am on the other side of this. I am going to tell you, I had an interesting thing happen this year, however. So he walked out of my life for the last time in 2021. He passed away this January, 2023. And that has been very interesting. Okay. We might need to extend this just a little bit. So tell us why it's interesting. We're well, going to go over, folks. So just so you know, we, we got to get the end of the story. So wh why was that interesting? We got to hear it here. Well, okay. So first of all, I felt like if you spoke to me the first of this year, I was in such a good place mentally, emotionally. I was feeling very healed. I was helping other people. It was like amazing. And then he dies the end of January. And there are many things happening because when your emotional abuser passes away, a lot of things occur. But don't forget, I was the only child. So right. I planned the funeral. Like I had people calling me saying, you don't have to go to the funeral. Go, honey, I planned it. What are you talking about? <laughs> but it was so different from mothers. Here I'm telling you, my mother's was standing room only. There were like 20 people at his funeral. Mm. It was, it was not, it, it was very much what I always believed it would be. So then he left me many, many, I'm going to say this in a politically correct way, screw you kind of things. 
So he disinherited me. He made my cousin the trustee, whom he didn't even like. It was more about last man standing. Like he couldn't ask my my husband or myself, right? So that has been a giant hornet's nest. And on top of that, the house was completely full. I'm talking about every drawer, every closet Mm. jammed. And who was left to clean that out? Who was going to do that? The cousin he appointed the trustee who lives in another state? I don't think so. So the good news is he did leave everything to my children, which thank God, because I think it could have gone a lot of different ways. Right. It's complicated and messy. And then now I'm discovering that he spoke to people and texted them. There was a whole smear campaign against me, even though I didn't do anything. I just backed away. And the funny thing is, he started threatening me with disinheritance in 2016. I said to him in 2016, aren't we down the rabbit hole if you're threatening me now? Won't you know that I'm there just because of the money? Hmm. And I never, I never, I I went back that one more time, but it didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't for the money at that point. And I, I never did that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my story. Well, let's wrap it up with this. Where are you at now? How are you living your life now? And what are the good things? What are the positive things that you're doing to, like you said, you disconnected that conditional love and said, I have values. So where are you at now? And what do you do? And what do you practice now? So I now provide an incredible service for people in that I believe that this type of emotional abuse is so specific and so cruel that you don't really understand it unless you've experienced it. Mm. And so when people tell me their story, I get it on a completely different level than someone who hasn't experienced it. And I am able to use my experience and all of the research I did and all of the things I've learned, as well as all the things I learned from my clients and help people on this healing journey. And when I tell you that it is the most gratifying thing I have ever done in my life. And I know there's a very famous quote, and I think it's from Gloria Steinem, where she says, the highest level of healing is being able to use your experience to help other people heal. I think I just murdered that quote, but you know. (laughs) We'll look it up and we'll get it right. It's okay. I get it. I get it. (laughs) So that's what I'm doing today. I'm coaching people one-on-one. And I must tell you, I love my clients. I feel like I am able to share my stories and help them see give them comfort and clarity in what happened mm-hmm. and validation. Like that's, that's all we're looking for. You know, when you suffer this type of emotional abuse. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the question I ask everybody, as we kind of start to just wind down here, either a, and I'm actually going to give you the option because I love where you're going with this stuff. Either a, is there something on your heart that you wish you would have said throughout this last couple of minutes here or B, is there something that you said that you feel like you need to emphasize? And I'll give you the floor to let you kind of give you your mic drop moment. Well, you know, I wish if I could talk to my younger self, my 39-year-old self, gosh, I would love to tell that woman that it's okay 
to not allow toxic people to control you. Mm. And it's okay to walk away from that relationship because I got to tell you, it was, it was like obligation and, and guilt and all those things keeping me there. I would also tell that person when people show you who they are, believe them. And then I tell her, you didn't do anything to deserve this and you're not alone. I love that. I'm going to just clip that and we're going to use that because that's so that, that's such a great conclusion. And I guarantee you that there's going to be somebody listening to this that's going to say, hey, I resonate with Lynn. How can they get in touch with you? How can we be able to arrange to be able to get in contact with you? So uh, my website is lynncatalano.com. I'm on Instagram, Wrecking Ball Relationships. I'm on LinkedIn. That's the name of my book, by the way, is Wrecking Ball Relationships, because I thought that I had a wrecking ball in my brain. That's how I felt. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm all over the place. So please, uh, Lynn Catalano, come talk to me. I'd love to speak with you. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that you said that too, because that's basically the way we end everything. So a wrap up, a couple of things. One, we are definitely going to put links in the description. So if you're listening to this on a podcast, go back, look at the description. Lynn is going to give us a link for her book. So that way we can have that there. Because I think that's a really powerful resource for those that want to hear about more stories in regards to this. Uh, we'll put the connections for the social. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the in the description that you need to go back. And, and maybe you even need to just rewind and listen to this again, because there's so much power within this. And then, like I say every time, but I really mean this from the bottom of my heart, if something that was said throughout this last 30 minutes or so touched you, impacted you, or you felt like you just resonated please feel free to reach out either to myself directly to uh, those that are working with Narrative Live or either reach out to Lynn herself. I guarantee. And that's why we have people on here is because at the heart of every story, people want to be able to reach out and help others. And that's why they're here. That's why Lynn is here. So again, like I said, please make sure you reach out, make sure you contact us. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe. If you haven't watched us on YouTube and want to, we can, we're there. Until next time, keep writing your story, crafting your narrative, and live the life that you need to create. Thanks for listening to today's show. But before you go, let me ask you a question. How would you like to be the author of your story? Take the next step now at www.narrative.live and enter your details to connect with a community of others just like you that are tired of living under the false narrative. Finding your true story and writing your narrative, it will give you clarity, freedom of your day, and it just might change your life forever.